Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts as we come before God's word together, shall we? Father, we just thank you for this opportunity on this day when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This opportunity just to meet together, to fellowship, to encourage each other, to strengthen each other, to build each other up in this most holy faith that we have. And Lord, as we just consider these things now, as we look at your word, Lord, just allow us us to forget the troubles, concerns of this life and be reminded of what really is important, that we have a relationship with God the Father because Jesus died and rose again and that we have been adopted and invited into your family. What a privilege we have. So Lord, bless us now as we just spend this time in study and encouragement together in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the miracle of the resurrection. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, contends that the basis of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not all the miracles, not all the teaching, the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Paul says that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that we are of all men most miserable. And the biggest problem he then cites is that we're still in our sins. Do you know that's the big differentiator between Jesus Christ and every other leader of a world religion or founder of any religion or philosophy? None of them deal with the problem of sin. And none of them are able to. Jesus Christ is the only one who addresses the problem of sin. Every other belief, religion, philosophy, whatever, if if it even acknowledges the reality of sin, which we see all around us, so it's pretty hard to ignore it, they all have this mindset that if we do enough good things, it will outweigh the bad things. Really? Try that in any legal system. Try standing before a judge guilty of a crime and saying, yeah, but I did a lot of good stuff as well. The judge isn't going to go, oh, well, that's okay, then you can go. We'll forget this, this crime you've committed. No, you stand to account for the crimes you've committed. In the same way, everybody will stand to account for the sin they've committed. Sin is rebellion against God. It's breaking God's law. It's putting our own standard in place of God's standard. God's standard is clearly seen. We have the Ten Commandments. It's a standard so lofty compared to our own ideas. But as has been said before, you know, even if you... Come up with your own standard of what you think is right and what you think is wrong. You'll probably break that by the end of the day. We have an inbuilt problem in the human race of sin. And so we have the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that if that event is not true, Christianity is not true. Again, as I said, Christianity isn't based upon Christ's teaching, his character, or the miracles. This is the verse that Paul says in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain. In other words, we might as well just pack up and go home. If this isn't true, who wants to believe a lie? But then he says, yeah, we have found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised up not if it so be, rhetorical kind of question here, the dead rise not. Paul's saying, it's it's ridiculous. You know, there's no point in doing this thing, coming to church and everything else. If Jesus did not rise from the dead physically, then we're just deceiving ourselves. 
Shelley, in his really good book, Church History in Plain Language, it's available probably go on Amazon and other places. Uh, he says, First Corinthians fixes belief in the historical resurrection of Jesus as the indispensable basis of salvation. Okay, so if we want to spend eternity with God in heaven, as opposed to the other place, the only way of doing that is believing and trusting in the resurrection. But you know, a lot of people have this misconception of faith. They think faith is some kind of like blind leap in the dark. That's not the case at all. Faith is believing, not in spite of the evidence, but being aware of the consequences and still putting your faith and trust in Jesus. You know, on the day of the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples. A week later, Thomas was with them. And do you know what Jesus says to Thomas? Remember what he said? Handle me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see I have. Jesus says, you want evidence? Here's proof. Dr. Luke, in his account, both in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, says that Jesus appeared alive with many infallible proofs. You can't kind of write that stuff and publish it in a book if there were no proofs whatsoever, because people would have just ridiculed it. It wouldn't have gone anywhere. That's overwhelming evidence. Josh McDowell, who wrote a fantastic book, uh, Evidence Demands a Verdict, said, everything that Jesus Christ taught, lived, and died for depended upon his resurrection. And he quotes Theodosius Harnack, uh, who said this, where you stand with regard to the fact of the resurrection is, in my eyes, no longer Christian theology. To me, Christianity stands or falls with the resurrection. Now, of course, we make these statements. On a day like today, churches around the country are going to be saying these kind of things. But the challenge from non-believers, from skeptics, maybe members of our family as well, prove it. That's what they'll ask us. Can you prove it? Yeah, we can prove it. You see, there is overwhelming evidence. Lord Lindhurst, who was recognized as one of the greatest legal minds in British history, wrote this. He said, I know pretty well what evidence is. And I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. Sir Edward Clark made this comment. He said, as a lawyer, I have made a prolonged study of the evidence for the events of the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, I've secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. Inference follows on evidence. And a truthful witness is always artless and disdains effect. The gospel evidence for the resurrection is of this class. And as a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as a testimony of truthful men to facts they were able to substantiate. I want to read this to you. History records that two young men, Gilbert West and Lord Littleton, went up to Oxford. They were friends of Dr. Johnson and Alexander Pope. Dr. Johnson, famous as a dictionary and so on. Uh, in, the, in the swim of society, they were determined to attack the very basis of the Christian faith. So Littleton settled down to prove that Saul of Tarsus was never converted to Christianity. And West to demonstrate that Jesus never rose from the tomb. Sometime later, they met to discuss their findings. Both were a little sheepish. For they had both come to similar and disturbing conclusions. 
Littleton found on examination that Saul of Tarsus did become a radically new man through his conversion to Christianity. And West found that the evidence pointed unmistakably to the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead. These are two individuals that set out to disprove Christianity. Josh McDowell was another one who set out to disprove Christianity. Warner Wallace, a person I'm going to mention in a moment, was another individual who set out to try and disprove Christianity. They all came to faith in Jesus because of the evidence. Now, there's lots of evidence that we can present. There, of course, are eyewitness accounts. And those have been thoroughly verified. We've got, of course, Luke, Matthew, Peter, John, Paul, and so on. We have also written testimony. Josephus, Pilate, Marcion. Marcion was not a believer, far from it. He was very antagonistic towards Christianity. And yet the things he wrote inadvertently support the, what the gospel writers wrote. And then there's Roman officials, a number of them. If you want to dig into some of that more, I would strongly encourage getting a copy of the Authenticity of the New Testament, part one, which goes through the gospels and the evidence we have by Bill Cooper, Dr. Bill Cooper. Fantastic book. Just completely undermining the critics' arguments and showing that we have documented evidence of these things. Then, of course, we've got physical evidence. There's a number of things we can cite. But, of course, there's the moved stone, the empty tomb, the temple in the curtain that was torn into. All these things, they're facts. You can't deny them. You have to do something with them. And then we've got circumstantial evidence. Now, this is something a lot of people would dismiss and say, oh, well, you can't, that's just you know, circumstantial evidence. But there's a real power in circumstantial evidence. Uh, Jay Warner Wallace asked this question. And by the way, he used to be a cold case detective. I've got a book I'm reading of his at the moment. It's really interesting. He was uh, in America, again, in the the police, and he would get cases on his desk that had gone cold, murders and crimes that had not been solved. And so he'd be given all this evidence, and it could be from years before, and he wouldn't necessarily be able to go and interview the the eyewitnesses. Some of them had died by that point or whatever else, weren't available anymore. And so he would have to sift through this evidence and look at the witness statements and work out what was true and what wasn't true. And a number of these cases got solved because of the circumstantial evidence that they had. And he's asked this question, can the truth be proved beyond a reasonable doubt when all the evidence we have is circumstantial? And his answer to the question is, absolutely. You know, if you have enough circumstantial evidence, you're left in a position that there really is no logical conclusion other than all this evidence is pointing in one direction. You have to come to an obvious conclusion. And juries today are told by the the courts to examine the circumstantial evidence in the same way they would as any other form of evidence. Now, we've got a lot of circumstantial evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to just consider some of these things this morning to encourage you in your faith and maybe in your conversations with others. The things I want to just consider, the fact that the resurrection was foretold. Just stop and think about that for a second. People get hung up on, well, people can't rise from the dead. Well, we're dealing with God here, so that's kind of like pushed to one side anyway. But they may argue with the mechanics of whether the resurrection couldn't happen or didn't happen. Well, okay, but it was foretold. We'll talk about that in a second. And then we've got Jesus' own testimony. This wasn't just a story that the disciples made up because Jesus repeatedly said that he was going to be killed and that he would rise again on the third day. 
Even the disciples didn't believe him until after the event. That is really powerful circumstantial evidence. Then we've got the testimony of the Roman guards, often not considered, but really compelling. There's the testimony of Pilate himself we'll consider in a moment. And then, of course, the transformation of the disciples. We'll talk about that briefly. And then to conclude, the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the good news that we have? Well, Paul explains what the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll, we'll conclude with that in about an hour and a half. No, just joking. Just a little Okay. Let's go from the beginning. Let's look at the fact that the resurrection was foretold. Abraham, the founder of the Jewish nation. Right, Abraham actually acted out the crucifixion and resurrection 2,000 years before the event. We have it recorded in Genesis 22. So much so that he even names the place where this happens as Jehovah Jireh, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And the the place he did that was a Mount Moriah. We're told that back in Genesis. But that place later changes its name. And we know it as Calvary. The very place that Abraham and Isaac went up to this hill and Abraham was to offer his son as a sacrifice of course, God steps in and intervenes. But that very place would later be known as Calvary. The very place that God the Father would offer his son. It's an incredible dress rehearsal for the main event, as it were. And it's the exact same spot that some 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ is offered as the lamb. Do you remember what Abraham said? When Isaac said, we've got the word and everything else, but where is the lamb? And God, and Abraham says, God will provide himself the lamb. Not God will provide a lamb for himself. God will provide himself. God in the person of Jesus Christ came down and he was offered as the lamb on the very spot. Now, people that argue, well, the resurrection couldn't happen. How do you deal with this? 2,000 years before the event, we have a dress rehearsal of exactly what took place. You have to do something with that. And then you've got King David. David recorded a 1,000 years, give or take a bit, in advance. The very words that Jesus would speak on the cross. Now, skeptics would jump and say, well, because Jesus knew those words, that's why Jesus recited them. Yeah, okay. How do you deal with this then? Because David made the declaration that God would not leave the Messiah in Sheol, in the grave, in Hades. That he would be resurrected. If Jesus wasn't God, then he couldn't do anything about that himself. But of course, Jesus was God. And so David speaks of all of these things. In fact, so many more. You've only got to look through the book of Psalms and see how many messianic Psalms we have, all pointing forward to Jesus. And then we've got the likes of Isaiah, some 700 years before Jesus came. I mean, we we get some bit blasé with these numbers. Try and imagine what the world would be like in 700 years from now. Of course, if the Lord doesn't come back, which by then he will have done, I'm sure. But you can't imagine. You can't even imagine what the world would be like in 50 years. We we were out for a, a bike ride. Friday, and uh, we just bumped into an older couple that were out on their bikes as well. And we were just chatting, and in, in the conversation, the, the gentleman made some comment about uh, LPs. And I just looked at the girl and I said, they have no idea what that is. But you think 50 years ago what the world was like, and now what it's like. I mean, I grew up in a world without computers, without mobile phones. It was lovely. 
Now, don't get me wrong, we, we've got lots of benefits that come with the technology. But what my point is, the world has changed so much. I used to chat to my granddad. My granddad, during the Second World War, um, he was uh, an engineer. And he was up in uh, the Word Arsenal in London. And during the war, he was sent down to Paul and Dorset to um, be the foreman to run a factory that were making the guns for the Spitfires. I used to go over and I used to sit for ages just listening to him talk, the stories he used to tell me, the things that happened. But the changes he saw in his lifetime were just incredible. Well, Isaiah is prophesying things that would take place 700 years in the future about a specific individual. And he he specifically speaks of Jesus' arrest, of the trial, what actually took place, the crucifixion, the burial, where he would be buried, that it would be a rich man's tomb, and gives us the specific reason for his death, all 700 years before the event. He also prophesied that the resurrected Messiah would rule the whole earth. See, all of these people in the Old Testament spoke of Jesus, not just of what would happen in the crucifixion, but that he would be risen, he would rise from the dead, and he would rule the earth. Many scriptures we can cite. And then we've got the likes of Daniel. Now we're coming down a bit in time, but even 500 years is still pretty impressive because 500 years before Jesus was born, Daniel records the very day Jesus would enter Jerusalem as king. And in Luke 19, and we studied this a little bit last week, in Luke 19, Jesus holds the Jews accountable for knowing what day that was. It was the specific day, the only day that Jesus presented himself to Israel as their king. They'd wanted to do it many times after the feeding of the 5,000. The people wanted to take Jesus and make him their king. Jesus wouldn't let them because his hour was not yet come. His time was not yet come. That constant refrain through the Gospels until we get to the night before Palm Sunday and Jesus says to his disciples, my hour has come. And Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, just as a king would do. Those that were lining the the way with their clothes and with palm branches were singing Psalm 118. It's the psalm that will be sung when the Messiah came. They were declaring Jesus the king, the Messiah. And Daniel nails the exact day. This incredible prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel also recalls that the Messiah would be killed for others, but also recalls that after his death, he will one day return to rule the whole earth. Daniel chapter 2 makes that really clear. So all of these prophecies. So that anybody that says, well, I, I don't think the resurrection, well, okay, how do you deal with the fact that all of these people in the Old Testament, I just cited four, there's many we could say. All of these people spoke of the Messiah, that he would come, that he would suffer, that he would rise again. Then we've got Jesus' own testimony. Matthew 16, verse 21, we read, From that time forth, this is now about six months before Jesus was going to be crucified. It's got autumn, winter of AD 31. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. It's really clear. Six months beforehand, Jesus was saying to his disciples, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be handed over by the chief priests and so on, and I'm going to be killed. But I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. Now, this isn't something that 
a rational person would say. A few verses up further on, in Matthew 17, while they'd abode at Galilee, starting to make this journey down, down from Caesarea Philippi, north of Israel, coming down to Galilee, Jesus said unto them, the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again, and they were exceeding sorry. Jesus, a number of things here. Firstly, he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be killed, but he's going to rise from the dead. And then as we get to the outskirts of Jerusalem, Matthew 20, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. So he's going to be betrayed, handed over to the Jewish religious leaders. They're going to condemn him to death. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. He's going to be mocked and scourged. And Chris, I mean, the detail in those two verses, Matthew chapter 20, verse 18 to 19, now, that may only be a few months before the events, but to prophesy with that precision things that were not within Jesus' power or control to do himself. And why would you want to? Why would you volunteer to be scourged and to be mocked? But of course, Jesus came to do the will of his Father, to give his life as a ransom for many. Once again, that declaration that Jesus said himself that he was going to rise from the dead. This is really powerful circumstantial evidence. When you put all of these things together, you are left in no doubt whatsoever. We'll keep going. But I just want to read you a quote from C.S. Lewis. He said this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option, or he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Just a logical breakdown of the facts we have. Jesus said that he was going to die and he was going to rise from the dead. Unless he was God, as C.S. Lewis puts it, he's either a mammon, a lunatic, or worse. We could labor either, each of these points, but I want to keep moving. Now, I want to get on to the testimony of the Roman guards, but to do this, I want to give you a little bit of a, a background leading up to the event so you get the kind of real picture of this whole scenario. Now, on Wednesday evening, we celebrated, um, we had this communion to talk about the Last Supper, and we studied the scriptures. That was in this particular week, in Passion Week, as we refer to it. It was on the Wednesday evening, just as we've had this week. The dates this week happened to match this year for us. Last Sunday was the 10th. That was, it was the 10th that Jesus rode into Jerusalem in the Jewish calendar. The, the Wednesday evening, you see the color changes on the chart there. When it gets to the, Wednesday evening, it becomes the new day in the Jewish calendar. Because the Jewish day begins in the evening, because in the Garden of Eden, evening and the morning were the first day, and so on. So the Jews have adopted that mindset, that they have their day beginning in the evening. So 
when it gets to sundown on the Wednesday evening, it becomes for the Jews the 14th. We think of it not till the next day, but for the Jews it would be the 14th. That was when the Passover would begin. And that's why Jesus celebrates the Passover, the Last Supper, with his disciples. And yet, because it's still the 14th, as the clock rolls over in our mindset, this is still the 14th until sundown, this is when the crucifixion takes place, also on the Passover. And Paul says that Jesus was our Passover. You see, this is one of the other things, and we could labor this. The precision of these details... Exodus chapter 12 says that the Jews were to take a lamb on the 10th day. Well, that's when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and they received him. And they were to keep the lamb until the 14th day, and then he was to be killed literally between the evenings. They had a 24-hour window in which the Passover lambs had to be killed. And Jesus was killed in exactly the right time, in exactly the right moment to fulfill those prophetic models that had been laid down. Just picking up from Matthew 27, verse 50, it says, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Jesus was on the cross for six hours. Some have postulated that maybe that was because each hour represented a portion of our history, 6,000 years of human history, approximately from creation to that time. Maybe. Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two. This incredible curtain, we'll talk about it in a second, was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. Josephus comments on these incredible activities that were going on in the the world around them, the, the earthquake and so on. Josephus actually tells us that this curtain was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. This is a big curtain, but not like these curtains that we see hanging here. It was woven, Josephus says, as thick as the span of a man's hand. That's how thick it was. Sorry. That thick. It was estimated it weighed around five tons. And Josephus says that if you tied horses to each end of the curtain, it couldn't pull it apart. It was that thick and that strong. I mean, you've probably tried ripping material at some time. Again, behold, the veil of the temple was rent into from the top to bottom. The earth did quake and the rocks rent. That occurs at the point that Jesus dies, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, just as the evening sacrifice in the temple. And many priests would have been in the temple at this time officiating. And this curtain that divided the main area of the tabernacle, the temple from the Holy of Holies, literally is torn in two. Of course, symbolically, it's showing that the way is now open. Acts confirms that many priests came to faith. Not surprised when they see something like this going on. The Talmud, one of the Jewish books, records that an earthquake in Jerusalem occurred about 40 years before the temple was destroyed. Well, very close, 38 years exactly. And we're told that the graves were open and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. And came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Well, so a lot of time thinking about that. That's staggering. You know, it's been impossible for Matthew to write this down and to have this gospel circulated, this book that he's written. People would have read that and go, that's nonsense. Unless that were true, that would never be accepted by anybody. 
But notice these people that rose at this point went out. Imagine getting a, a knock on the door from somebody that you thought had died. Again, if it was false, it would simply be discredited. And now we read this. Now when the centurion, they that were with him, watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly this was the Son of God. We'll spend some time, another time, talking about the centurion. And the incredible sequence of events that led to that moment in his life when he comes to that knowledge and understanding that Jesus Christ was no mere man, that this was the Son of God. It had been supernaturally dark on the earth for three hours. That's unusual. It wasn't an eclipse. When the, uh, so when the even was come, so now we're getting to sundown in the evening on the Thursday, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. Now he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was part of this 70, or this group of 70 leaders spiritually of the nation. And he and Nicodemus had both come to faith. They'd come to believe and trust that Jesus really was the Messiah because of all the scriptures that are pointed to him. All of these incredible prophecies being fulfilled in this one man at that particular time. As Joseph comes to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. Have you ever stopped to think about how audacious a request that is of Joseph? Now, Joseph clearly must have been a man of renown. Some victims of crucifixion could last days. I think the longest recorded one is about 13 days. Somebody was literally hanging on a cross until they just gave out. The shortest was 32 hours that had been recorded, so you'd stay there for a long time. Jesus incredibly quickly died. Now, of course, you know that they would come and break the bones of the the victims to speed up death so that they could get them off the cross and bury them and so on. But naturally, if just left, it was a long, agonizing and painful death. Again, to fulfill the prophecy, not a bone of Jesus was broken. You see, people that mark and say the resurrection couldn't have happened, how do you deal with all of these facts, all these prophecies, all fulfilled at this particular time in this one person? Just statistically, the chance of it being anything other than Jesus Christ being God in the flesh is just impossible. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, he was, as we mentioned, a very notable and wealthy man. He was held in very high regard. He's actually in Mark 15 called Honorable Counselor. He's one of only 14 such men in the history of the nation. Very highly regarded. And he and Nicodemus go to Pilate, they ask for the body, and they are granted the body of potentially this, as he was crucified, this Roman criminal. The fact that they grant the body in itself is incredible, but that they go and ask. They know that by doing this, they are going to be excommunicated. They'll be, they'll lose their office as a result. But they take Jesus, they anoint him and put him in Joseph's tomb. In 1885, the British general, General Gordon, discovered this tomb. It's just outside the Damascus gates in Jerusalem. It's had a huge, it's got a gully. You can't quite see there, but at the bottom, there's a gully in front of this thing, where a stone could be rolled in front of the tomb. 
it's an incredible place to visit. If any of you go to Israel, you, Jerusalem, you need to go to this place. Inside, they've obviously put some railings and things now, um, but you've got this area. The, the, the interesting thing, obviously, this has been carved out of rock, clearly for a number of bodies to be laid in. Joseph, obviously, was planning this as his family tomb. But when General Gordon found this place, before anybody else was let in, he let some people go in and take scrapings from the place. And they found no evidence of human decomposition. In other words, no corpses had ever been laid there to decompose. This is a tomb that somebody has spent a fortune carving out of the rock and nobody had ever been put in. And actually, two of the places hadn't been completely finished either. Interesting. So that's then as it gets to sundown on the Thursday evening, as the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins in the Jewish calendar, this high Sabbath where no work was permitted. Do you remember they had to get the body of Jesus in the ground because the Sabbath drew on? Not the Saturday Sabbath. The Saturday Sabbath will still come. This was the Friday. This was the 15th. This was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a high Sabbath where no work was permitted. There's 70 Sabbaths in the Jewish year. 52 of them are Saturday weekly Sabbaths. The others are special feast days, all referred to as the Sabbaths. And so when we get to the 15th itself, Okay, so this is now the, the following morning after the, res- after the crucifixion. And we read now the next day that followed the day of preparation. That's how the 14th was considered because they were prepare everything for the 15th when no work could be done. The chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. What an incredible testimony we have. We have a testimony here from the Jewish leadership acknowledging that Jesus had declared that he was going to rise from the dead after three days. Why were they concerned? Well, it goes on and says, Command therefore that the sepulchre, this tomb, this grave, be made sure, secure, until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. They they were fearful of this. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, you have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. You just detect in Pilate, because all these had already gone through, remember his wife had had a dream and these kind of things had gone on. <laughs> okay, have at it, go, try and make it secure if you can. So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. We're going to talk about this watch in just a second. Let's jump to the, the resurrection morning now. So this is now the Sunday morning. Now, it says when the Sabbath in the Hebrew, this is, or in the Greek, it's plural rather here. The Sabbath, because we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread and then the Saturday Sabbath. So the first opportunity that the women have was now the Sunday morning. When the Sabbaths were passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning on the first day of the week, so we've got our time frame, we know it's a Sunday, They came unto the sepulchre at the rising of the sun, and they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulchre? Bear in mind, they had no idea that a Roman guard had been posted there. If they'd have known that, they may not even have come. 
And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. Now listen to this. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment was white as snow, and for fear of him, the keepers, who are the keepers? The Roman guard that are there, did shake and become as dead men. Only Matthew records this for us. A very interesting reason we'll explain in a moment. So these Roman soldiers that are standing guard, that have been asked to guard this tomb. And then we're given what the official story was as they find that the body is no longer there. Behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. They explained about the angel and what had happened. And when they were assembled with the elders, they had taken counsel that they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, See ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while he, while we slept. Right? So this Roman guard that had been appointed there to guard this place are told, just tell them you all nodded off and somebody came and stole the body. That was a real problem. I'll explain why. But the Jewish leadership said, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. That's not just, you know, we'll tell him it's okay, we don't worry too much. Secure you means we will make sure you are provided for. And I'll explain why. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now, just consider this royal guard. This watch that we've spoken of was a royal Roman guard made up of 16 highly trained Roman soldiers. Each would have a spear, a short sword, and a dagger, and they would be very skilled indeed. Each man had five javelins inside of the curved shield. You've all seen those typical Roman shields that they have. Their primary weapon, however, was a sling. And they were trained to hit a target 70 feet away. These were like the elite forces, the special forces, like the, the Navy SEALs or the SAS of the day. If a commanding officer came and found just one of the guards asleep, all 16 men in the guard would be killed. What likelihood do you think that they'd nodded off? Unlikely. So if one fell asleep, the other guards typically would set their tunic on fire. That's going to prevent you from doing that, I think. Now, in 390 AD, so kind of way after these events, Rome was starting to fall apart. The Caesar at the time then, Flavius Veratus Ronitus, uh, sorry, uh, commanded um, this historian, Flavius Veratus Ronitus, uh, to search the archives for military and tactical inspiration. So Rome was a real problem. They asked this historian, look, can you come up with something? What's happened in the past? We've got to solve these threats and these problems we've got. Now, as a result, he reconstructed this elite unit based upon the documentation from the time. By the way, the American armed forces still use some of that documentation in terms of the the procedures and the discipline and everything else that this unit had as part of their training to this day. The tomb was sealed, it would have been sealed, with either wax or clay. Just like a, a letter, typically you've seen how they would put wax or clay on it and they would put the signet on the uh, the emperor. Nobody could open this unless you, you had authority. And the same way, this, this tomb would be sealed in the same way. Ropes would have also been put across the stone with the seal of Rome in the center. If anybody broke the seal, the punishment was to be crucified upside down. And if they couldn't catch you, they were crucified upside down, every man, woman, and child in your village. They were very serious about making sure these things were not violated. 
that tomb really was secure. And we read, and when the Sabbath were passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary Mother of James, and Salome had brought sweet spices that they might come anoint him. And again, very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came to the sepulchre, the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, who should roll away the stone from the door of the sepulchre? Now again, they did not know that the Roman guard were there, because that had happened the day after. And this earthquake we mentioned, the angel of the Lord comes, descends, and rolls back the stone, and as a result of this, these elite band of soldiers become as dead men, paralyzed with fear. How do we know this? Have you ever thought about that? How do we get this record? Who was there to record these events for us? Whose eyewitness testimony is this, after all? Well, we have the inside story. How do we have it? Because in Israel at that time, there were tax collectors. They would stay in their office. They would do paperwork. And then there were others, tax collectors, who would go out and about and collect taxes from the public. They became known as publicans. Matthew was of the latter sort. He was a publican. He was a Jew, but he collected taxes going out and about for Rome. As a result, he would always have a Roman attachment with him, a Roman soldier standing by, a Roman guard. Matthew would have got to know some of these people personally. Again, they'd have had that shield, that spear to signify the authority of Rome and so on. And Matthew's the only gospel writer to tell us what happened at the tomb. The angel came down, rolled the stone away, and what happened in the discussion with Pilate. And the soldiers didn't go to Pilate when they fled the tomb, but they went to the priests first. And that the priests paid the soldiers to keep quiet. How did Matthew know any of that? Because he'd have been told personally. Again, as we said this, they got paid off. They took the money. And that's what was commonly reported. Imagine those being in a kind of a courtroom environment and offering that as your, your defense. Uh, well, your honors as disciples, they came and stole the body. How do you know? Uh, well, we were all asleep. <laughs> How do you know as disciples then? Uh, just, the arguments just fall down straight away, don't they? So it's just an incredibly powerful piece of circumstantial evidence that comes into this big pot that we have of evidence. We've got the testimony of Pilate. Now, George Sutter, 1837-1908, just read this. He said, important testimony of Pontius Pilate uh, recently discovered being his official report to the Emperor Tiberius concerning the crucifixion of Christ. It seems that Pilate actually wrote to the emperor of all that had happened, including the fact that Jesus had raised from the dead, been risen from the dead. There's actually, you can get it online, this will be on, on our website later, and you can see the link there. You can go to this and you can see this document. The original manuscript apparently is now housed in the Vatican, but this has been verified as a genuine historical document. What's interesting is we have historical corroboration for this. Justin Martyr was one of the early Christians in his first apology or defense of Christianity uh, for the Christians, which was presented to the emperor Antonius Pius in the year 138, having mentioned the crucifixion of Jesus and some of its attendant circumstances, says, and these things were do- uh, so done, you may know from the acts made in the time of Pontius Pilate. And this is the learned Tertullian in his apology for Christianity about the year 200, after speaking of our Savior's crucifixion and resurrection and his appearance to the disciples, 
who were ordained by him to publish the gospel over the world, thus proceeds, of all these things relating to Christ, Pilate himself, in his conscience, already a Christian, sent an account to Tiberius, then emperor. So we have historical documents to say that something was sent by Pilate to the Roman emperor. And now we even have that document. And it's incredible. This could be often referred to as the Acta Politi, the Acts of Pilate. And it's it's a report to Emperor Caesar concerning the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he details what happened regarding the crucifixion, the kind of man Jesus was, that Jesus had been granted freedom to teach the people, that wealthy people didn't like Jesus on account of his support for the poor. Miraculous events took place at the tomb of Jesus that a brilliant light was seen, that an angelic being appeared, that there was an earthquake, that trained Roman guards collapsed in terror, and that they actually saw Jesus risen from the dead. But then they were given money to keep quiet. So we have historical documents outside the Bible all verifying these things from people who had nothing to gain by doing it. In fact, they, they would lose everything. Pilate, as a result of these things, was eventually removed from office. And they even tried to remove his any record of him. And for many years, it was believed that this character was just some fictitious thing only mentioned in the Gospels until they found, I uh, forget exactly where it was now, I apologize for the location, I don't remember, but they unearthed this stone and they found that it had actually been a, a seat and there's this inscription on there specifically referencing Pilate. And so, yeah, absolutely, Pilate was a historical character. These events were real historical things. Just very quickly, I wanted to just think about the transformation of the disciples as well. We're told the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, it's the day of the resurrection, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled. Notice what it says, for fear of the Jews. The disciples knew that their own lives were in jeopardy. And then Jesus comes to stand in the midst of them and says, unto them, peace be unto you. The Jews, these um, disciples were fearful. They were afraid. They were hiding behind locked doors. But just a few weeks on from this, Acts chapter 4, verse 13, we read this. Now, when they, that's the Jewish leadership, saw the boldness of Peter and John. Hang on. They saw the boldness of Peter and John, these people that were hiding, that were frightened. Something dramatically changed. What was it? They knew Jesus was alive. That changes everything. And they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. They marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. In Acts chapter 419, he goes on and says, But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and Heard. They were eyewitnesses of these events. But just consider the dramatic change in their lives from being fearful, afraid, and hiding to boldly standing up and speaking in front of the Jewish leadership and saying, well, we're not going to listen to you. And then, of course, you've got Saul. Here comes Paul. Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, that was the name that was given to Christians, the way, it's a great name, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. That was Paul's mindset. He hated these Christians. He saw them as being standing against everything he loved. 
about the law of Moses and so on. Of course, he would later learn the significance of all of those things. But let, we go on. But Barnabas took Paul and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, and he had spoken unto him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. This is the same Paul that wanted to kill the Christians, is now speaking boldly in the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 19, verse 8, he went into the synagogue, which is Paul again, speaking boldly for the space of three months, going into the Jewish synagogue, speaking about Jesus Christ, and that he'd risen from the dead. And he noticed disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Paul eventually ends up in Rome, and we read, And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. An incredible change had taken place in these lives. So much so that every single one of the disciples that we know of, with the exception of John, were put to death, professing that Jesus had risen from the dead. Stephen was stoned to death. James was beheaded. Matthias was apparently tied down, and vultures ate him alive. Jude, or Thaddeus as he's referred to in the Gospel accounts, was crucified and shot with arrows. Nathaniel skinned alive and crucified. Now, at some point, if you made this story up, you're going to say, oh, it's, it's not true. None of these individuals recanted or said it was a made-up story. Every single one of them went to these horrific deaths professing that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. Now, maybe one was crazy, but all of them, really? Philip hanged, Andrew crucified in Egypt, Mark dragged behind chariots until he died, Matthew flayed and then beheaded, Luke crucified, James thrown from the top of the temple, Thomas was apparently impaled in India, Simon's lotus sawn in pieces. Peter crucified upside down and Paul beheaded in Rome. Albert Barnes says this. He said, there is no one truth that will have greater power over us when properly believed than the truth that Christ has risen from the dead. And I would encourage you this morning that this truth should radically change your life. That Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Let me just conclude by reminding you again what the gospel is. Paul nails it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. If you want a definition of the gospel, look at this. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The gospel isn't just some events that took place in Jerusalem that some people believe that this person rose from the dead and they became followers. It goes way back through the whole of the Old Testament. It didn't just start in AD 32 with these events. It had been prophesied since the foundation of the earth. Again, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What scriptures? The scriptures that spoke of the Passover lamb who had to be without spot, without blemish and killed on the 14th day of the month. Jesus was killed on the 14th day of the month on Passover. He became our Passover to, to, to shield us, to spare us from the wrath of God. Just as the, the Passover lambs in Egypt, those who were in the houses marked by the blood, were safe from 
the wrath of God. So those who are marked by Jesus' blood, who accept his death in their place, are spared from God's wrath. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then he was buried. When was he buried? The Feast of Unleavened Bread. As it gets to the evening, that's when Jesus' body is put into the ground. As the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins, Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it die, it will bring forth much fruit. Just as the Feast of Unleavened Bread was beginning, Jesus, according to the Scriptures, was placed in the ground. And then rose again the third day. When did he rise? On the Feast of First Fruits. The first Fruits. Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have risen from the dead. Again, all according to the Scriptures. The Crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus was all fulfilling these prophecies from thousands of years before. This is staggering. The more you think about it, the design and the fact that everything worked together in this one week of human history, breathtaking. Again, it was in fulfillment of Gabriel's prophecy in Daniel 9 that Jesus presented himself as the Messiah on the very day that had been foretold 500 years before. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, allowed himself to be worshipped as Messiah. It was the only day in his entire ministry he allowed and he arranged all the events, sending for the donkey and everything else. Again, it was the the tenth day, the triumphal entry, but the sacrificial lambs were being taken from the fields around Bethlehem and they were being taken and inspected, ready for the Passover sacrifice. The Feast of Passover foreshadows Christ's sacrificial death, the 14th of the month. Jesus was able to celebrate with his disciples and become the Passover lamb. The lamb had to be killed between the evenings. That gives us that 24-hour window that we said. And Paul states in 1 Corinthians 5-7 that Christ became our Passover. Those sheep in the fields around Bethlehem, the same, sheep, uh, same fields that David would have looked after the sheep in. Well, Josephus records over 250,000 lambs were sacrificed in the Passover celebrations. It's been estimated that there have been about 144 priests necessary to perform this, each killing approximately six lambs a minute, one every 10 seconds. These lambs were being brought by the people that were bringing them, and they would kill these lambs and move on to the next one. Every 10 seconds, 144 priests doing this around Six hours. How interesting is that? How long was Jesus on the cross? Six hours. Why these lambs were being offered in sacrifice, the Lamb of God was offering his life. It was typically from nine to three, the exact time that Jesus was on the cross. Again, those fields around Bethlehem were that tower, Migdalita, where we believe that Jesus was born. Not some stable, that's just some traditional fiction. But this tower, this place that Micah specifically says was where the Messiah would come and be born. This place that looked out over the fields was a watchtower for these sheep, for these these sheep that had to be kept ceremonial pure. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, of course, is his burial, the 15th by Jewish reckoning. Again, as I read or quote that scripture from John 12, unless a corn of wheat falls into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth. Exactly what Jesus did. And then the Feast of First Fruits, his resurrection. The 17th, Jesus rose from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. Do you know what's significant about the 17th? If you go back and you look in Genesis, you find that the ark 
came to rest on the mountains of Ararat on the 17th day of the seventh month. But the calendar gets switched around. The beginning of Exodus, or Exodus chapter 12, God says this month is now going to be your first month. So it becomes the same date. The 17th was the day the new life began on earth with the time of the, the ark. And it's the same day, the 17th. There's no meaningless details in the Bible. It was the 17th day of the first month that Jesus rises from the dead and effectively new life is now possible. Jesus becomes the first fruits of all that slept. Next week, we're going to move on to the book of Zechariah. Please read ahead. Let us bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning to be reminded of these things and the overwhelming evidence that we have in so many ways. Lord, the world may not believe. The world may not want to listen. They may try to come up with every reason, but the facts are the facts. And for any honest inquirer, there is only one conclusion from all this overwhelming weight of circumstantial evidence and eyewitness accounts and personal testimonies, written testimonies, that Jesus Christ is risen. And we thank you this morning that our hope is not based upon merely a faith thing that we hope it might be, that we'd like it to be. It's based upon the certainty that you rose from the dead in a declaration of your victory over sin and over death. We thank you this morning for these things. Lord, may we be encouraged, embolden us, just as the disciples were after they had come face to face with the risen Jesus, that they went out and changed the world. Lord, may we have that same courage and confidence that we change the world in which you've placed us for those around us who we have opportunity to speak to. The Lord, a multitude may be brought into your kingdom while there is still time. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.